So, well, what have your impressions been in the World Cup so far? I've got to say, the first ten days or so, I was pretty disappointed by it. And there, there were a lot of teams parking the bus and a lot of very formulaic football. The, the two key words of this World Cup have been well-organised. It's been an awful lot of teams who you'd say, yeah, pretty well-organised, which is interesting. Um, the tactical prevalence definitely seems to be uh, one up front in a lot of cases. Not not across the board, but but certainly all the teams that you perceive as the weaker teams, um, with a couple of notable exceptions. Yeah, it was kind of dull. But the thing about the World Cup is, it's good even when it's boring. I think. Oh well, it's 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 great just to watch that much football. I, I think perhaps some of the more innovative tactical teams have been the South American teams, and it's kind of borne out with four of the eight quarter finalists now being South American. We've seen Mexico, obviously, they're out. They they changed between three at the back and four at back. So did Uruguay, and so of Argentina. And I kind of I, I think they changed the flow of some of the games. But the European teams, almost all of them, have played one up front and been very dull. Spain being the exception. And you mentioned most of the weaker teams have have played one up front. Of course, the notable exception to that has been England, who uh, insisted on playing two up front, even though the world and his dog said they should probably only play one up front. Yeah, the, th- the yeah we'll we'll come on, we'll come on to England. Should we just should we just go for it? Should we just talk about England for a bit? Because let's just frankly, get it out of the way. Dying, yeah, I've been dying to. Um, right, I, I'm I'm kind of an England fan, kind of within within re- reason. I, I I have no flags. Um, I, I, I still I know I don't know. I, I kind of don't want to feel this way, but I still find the St George's Cross slightly repulsive. Um, I, I know that's not a, a widely held viewpoint, and there's a kind of strong movement to reclaim the St George's Cross for its kind of positive connotations, England this great nation and all that kind of stuff but I don't know, even when it's not being used as a kind of symbol of uh, far right English nationalism just there's something there's something kind of ugly to me about English nationalism in general but anyway, not been a great fortnight for English nationalism because our national team has been atrocious Oh, just just awful, just from the from the warm up games onwards, I mean, there was that uh, awful warm up game against Egypt uh, several months ago when England players really looked like they just couldn't be bothered, and maybe you could forgive that because it was right near the end of the season. Then there was a game against Mexico in, in which England pretty much got outplayed. Uh, the, the the shambolic game against Japan where uh, England managed to scrape a draw with a, a couple of bizarre own goals. Um, didn't, we, didn't they win? Wasn't it a win? Was two, it two, two, one? two 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 two. Oh right, yeah. And then the, the four World Cup games, uh, very average against USA, just awful against Algeria. Only slightly better against Slovenia. Actually, I thought they got a better press than they deserved for that game. And then just 
woeful against Germany. So fundamentally wrong, tactically, technically, in terms of their attitude. I've barely seen a worse game than that. And if there was an advertisement for shooting England players, John Terry and Matthew Upson would definitely be at the front of the queue there. Uh, followed by many of them, including our own Wayne Rooney, who had a, a terrible World Cup. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that. There's been a lot of talk on the Twitter and stuff about, oh, you see, the press will turn around now and blame a United player and make him a scapegoat again. And obviously, that, that is something which has happened many times. But Rooney, system or no system, had an absolutely shocking tournament. His first touch shouldn't really be affected by the formation that England are playing, but his first touch was just almost universally awful yeah slightly better against Germany maybe maybe there's some irony there he, he actually that was I think his best game of the tournament but he, yeah he, I don't know what it was he he was uh, at least a yard short of his normal pace I, I would I would offer that he wasn't fit uh, the England yeah. camp have been saying he was but I just don't believe it looking at you know I, I can see with my own eyes it doesn't look right um, yeah. definitely the formation wasn't right for him uh, he kept coming deep as a lone front man um, not, not the lone front man, but the leading front man um, in the final three, well, two and a half games. And then uh, with, with Heskey, obviously he was wandering everywhere and still not getting the ball. And, and, and uh, you know, he, what, did he have four shots or something uh, in four games? Just, you'd expect that in 30 minutes of football at Old Trafford, and I bet you he... Uh, he opens the the first game of the season if, if he's uh, if he's picked after uh, his uh, extended summer holidays, um, and he'll probably get more than four shots in the opening thirty minutes. There you go, bad World Cup for him, but he hasn't been singled out. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of him, but there's too many other failures in the squad to justifiably single out Rooney as a, as the uh, deciding factor. I mean, I think everyone from the the manager downwards. Um, can take a lot of blame and very few players will emerge from credit with any credit i mean i guess uh michael dawson um stephen warnock <laughs> joe hart and michael carrick will be pretty pleased because they didn't contribute to the to the terrible mess that was england but capello got it badly wrong almost everything terry had a shocker of a tournament not just his on the field play but the the ridiculous aborted coup uh, i think uh, it pains me to say this probably england's best player was stephen gerrard uh, and he should have been playing in the middle of the pitch, clearly. I, I don't agree with that at all. I think Gerard was good for about half an hour of the tournament. I, I think that Gerard against Germany was... Yeah, he, he didn't have a good game there. Yeah, he had a decent game against Slovenia. But but who had a good game anyway? I mean, Ashley Cole was consistent. You'd expect yeah. that. Um, he did go wandering for... Uh, what? Number two of th- four goals for Germany. Um, Is that the one that John Terry wasn't personally responsible for? Yeah. <laughs> the rest of them. Yeah, I mean, look, this it's a team with no spine, um, by which I don't actually mean to call into question their personal characteristics. I mean, the team had no spine. There was problems in goal, problems at central, central defence, terrible problems in the centre of midfield, and problems at centre forward. Yeah, I'd, like, I'd question their personal characteristics and their parentage, and probably their body odor too. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I feel that may be a little harsh, but you know, it's it, it, there's been a kind of a lot of talk about Capello, ranging from get him out, stupid eye to eye, to uh, no, look, it's not, it's got nothing to do with Capello. Capello's had success wherever he's been. It's just this bunch of players, 
And as with almost all things, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Although I would definitely lean towards the Pelo being incredibly culpable for the performances of this England team on a pitch. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is there anyone at the top level of world football who plays 4-4-2 on a consistent basis? Bayern Munich did um, through most mm. of their Champions League campaign um, yeah, and, and it, it took them to the final. Um, a very flexible 4-4-2, but they definitely did. Uh, in, in international football, no, there's not, there's not a lot that, that do it. Um, I mean, it's it, seen it, as an archaic system, but then again... 10 years ago 442 was seen as an archaic system and then it came back into favor for some time and in fact 10 years ago 352 was seen as the modern way you know with the, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or and then there was the evolution to the to the from Catanaccio to the sweeper sitting in front of the back yeah. uh, back four uh, and and so these things do evolve I, I think I think the issue is not the system per se it's do the players fit what you're playing? Does it make sense? How many square pegs have you got in round holes? Do they feel comfortable with it? Is it bringing the best out? And and does it, you know, play on your strengths and protect your weaknesses versus the opposition? And I think it was very candid of some of the German players to to come out after the game and just say, I mean, maybe it was very German of the German players to come out and say, this is how we beat you. And and it was absolutely right. They targeted specific players, but there was um. It was a brilliant piece t- tweeted by uh, Man United Youth this week, which recalls England's troubles at youth level, uh, in which the opposition said, oh, we targeted certain players because we knew they were weak on the ball, they'd give it away and we'd regain possession. Uh, it could have been a match report from any of England's games at the World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the other thing about systems is that if you're a tactically astute manager, you not only do you try and make square pegs in square holes wherever possible but you also adapt the system um, either to your own players but also to the situation or the opposition and Capella's substitutions were shocking in the, um, was it the game against Algeria where he made a like for like substitution and brought Defoe on for well, Sean Wright Phillips for Lennon to start with, and then Defoe for Heskey. Yeah, and it didn't change anything about the system. Nothing changed effectively. And it was against um, America as well when he brought on Crouchy up front and put Wayne Rooney on the left in the last fifteen minutes. And as as Crouch came on, I thought, all right, that's good. He's gonna he's gonna change it up, you know. Um, But instead, he just switched around the players on the pitch when when they were crying out for something different yeah I, I think there's a there's a fundamental thing we need to discuss as well and and Capella got so many things wrong and so did all the players and their attitude doesn't seem right and, and all of that is true the other fundamental thing is these players just aren't as good as they're hyped up to be uh, oh yeah absolutely I could not agree more and loved Roy Keane's rant was... yesterday and he, he said you know, he, he, I, I loved it he just he rated every single player effectively as shockingly poor and, and he's right I mean in, in world terms Rooney's the only world class. I hate to use a football cliche, but but player that England has. You know, no, tru- I truly, I... I think that's true, and and he had a very bad time. And I just don't think I just don't think this collection of players are very good. Even if you take the second level down, and include Cole, who I think is you know on the border of being a top top class player. I mean, there's very few left backs in the world better than him. Perhaps Patrice Everton will get onto him. Um, 
and, and then sort of Jam- Lampard and Gerrard and stuff. I mean, they haven't done enough at international level. Lampard's done it in Champions League, Gerrard sporadically, uh, but international level to justify that term. Uh, and they've very rarely produced it for England. Well, we can keep talking about how good they are, but... You know, the evidence is staring in front of us. From 2000 onwards, this so-called generation failed five tournaments in a row, one they didn't bother qualifying for, uh, and four others were essentially failures for a, for a team that has designs on winning the world's trophies. So um, something does need to change. Uh, Howard Wilkinson said it in 1997, then there was a blueprint by Trevor Brooking uh, four or five years ago. Both of them essentially said exactly the same thing. It needs a, needs a fundamental shift in coaching strategies in order to build, build a greater pool of talent. And uh, they've just been ignored by the Premier League clubs, and I don't think anything is essentially going to change. We're going to have a you know, middle-ranking group of players in world terms for as long as nothing changes. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of couldn't agree more with the idea that the real problem with this England team is that the players aren't that great. Um, although I think you could definitely use that exact group of players and get better results. Um, I couldn't, but somebody could. Um, I kind of disagree about Lampard in particular. And he, even Steve Gerrard, OK, just for a minute, I'm just going to put all partisan loyalty aside and just consider Steven Gerrard the player rather than the Liverpool player and and neither of them have ever been used properly by any manager the whole time they've been an England player the whole time and and that must be incredibly frustrating and debilitating and when they have been used well in at the highest level by their clubs they have kind of shone I mean Steven Gerrard you say sporadically but I think probably just basically the last couple of years have been very rough and he was a fairly consistent performer before that and obviously was absolutely instrumental in the Champions League win for Liverpool against whoever that was, I can't remember I don't want to talk about that but you know what I mean Um, and uh, Lampard's just a fantastic player he really is uh, I do think he is if you'd put him in a different team under different circumstances uh, the thing is though, they do have technical weaknesses which don't come you know other other teams compare very favorably with certainly the, the best in world football spain brazil argentina the the way they relate to the ball is completely different to the way english players relate to the ball even rooney whose technique is wonderful relates to the ball i don't know there's there's a difference in the physicality there's a difference in the speed of the passing there's you know it's just they, they wayne rooney is an absolutely brilliant english player I, I do think he's like obviously phenomenally gifted and world class and would shine anywhere in the world but he would shine at being brilliant at that kind of football you know I, I don't I suppose I'm not making too much sense because I'm talking fairly kind of esoterically well no no I, I, I actually I do tend to agree with you and, and that's got a lot to do with technique right and, and techniques born when players are between 8 and 12 and actually there's many arguments that it, it's before that um Manchester United take take on eight-year-old boys and play them in four sides, and it's been well documented this week with all the discussion about uh, academy football, um, and that's a fundamental shift from United's philosophy before that, because over the last ten years the club's actually produced very few players that have yeah. graduated into the first team. I mean, I make it four: Brown, O'Shea, Evans, and Fletcher. None of those are technical players either. No, not um, at all. And even so, even even the fantastic golden generation, 
um, are technical in specific ways, but yeah, not... well, Paul Scholes, the most European of those. I mean, Paul Scholes has slot into the current Barcelona. Paul Scholes of ten years ago, you stick him in the the Barcelona side now, and he he would shine. Um, and the same in the Brazil side or the Spanish side, and um, he was by far the, the, the most sort of European and addresses the ball in. And you talk, talking esoterically again addresses the ball in a much more european way than british players normally do um and but a lot of that you can coach just good technique now that the magic needs good technique to bring out and uh what a lot of people who know youth football better than i say is that we coach that out um part of it's to do with having 11 side games on a full-size pitch at a very very young age where power is all important a uh, very good piece in the i hate to say it the daily mail um, just prior to the World Cup, which uh, which talked about the you know, the the fundamental shift in tactics born out of playing eleven aside when you're ten, where because the keeper essentially can't kick it far enough, a goal kick becomes a defensive nightmare because you can't get it far enough away. So what you end up doing is sticking your two biggest guys at the bank so that they can lump it forward. <laughs> now that that's a pretty crude analysis, but no. I have to say that bears it out and. Uh, the pace and physicality of the English game also kills off uh, a, a lot of the technical players early where some clubs are, are saying, well, if you don't have pace and you're not over six foot tall, you haven't got a chance. Well, try telling that to Xavi, Iniesta and Fabregas, you know, none of which are lightning quick and none of which are more than about four foot three. Oh, well, absolutely. Lionel Messi, the, Argentine, right. the current Argentina manager in his day uh, yes. as well. Um, yeah, it's it's... What's very interesting is this 15-minute uh, conversation, without wanting to uh, big ourselves up too much, has offered way more in the realm of insightful punditry than the combined television efforts of the entirety of British television. Now, I can't speak for our listeners who are in different parts of the world, but we here in England have been absolutely bereft of quality analysis from the television networks in this country. Um, I believe it's fair to say that there have been three to four good to, uh, well, let's say decent to excellent pundits, and everyone else has been awful. Awful. It's it's just it's it's truly been awful. And what do you expect? I mean, they pay so much for broadcast rights, and uh, both the BBC and ITV have got you know nice on location sets. They've sent out reporters and pundits and commentators, and they're commentating live from each game, not the studio. And they're spending a hell of a lot of money, hell of a lot of money. What's wrong with getting the analysis right, the on-screen presentation of it? I mean, all the broadcasting is done by the host broadcaster, all the pretty pictures and extreme slow-mos, which themselves get a bit annoying, um, especially when it's of just some guy's face with a non-incident. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a fan. I like, I like that, like, there was one where it was just like three or four different players clapping the other day. It was brilliant. It's like the director's a real artist. Yeah. Hmm. But the punditry, it, just shocking. I mean, my my four most hated, um, and this is not p- picking any particular channel as favourites, uh, I absolutely hate Edgar Davids. I, I just think he's... And either he's absolutely stoned, or he just doesn't care. Andy Townsend, mindless, mindless commentary. No analysis whatsoever. Jim Beglin infuriates me. No... <laughs> Not only does he know nothing about the world game, but he's made no effort whatsoever to do some research. I mean, it's not difficult. It's not difficult. I mean, um, I, I did a bit of blogging for an- another website about um, 
about Serbia. I went out and I watched videos as much as I could of the players. I researched who they were, their backgrounds. I, I found quotes, anything to make it insightful because that's what you do when you produce content, whether it's on air or whether it's written. Uh, and then Alan Shearer, the most mind-numbingly boring, mediocre, beige pundit you could possibly get. Um, but then on the other side, um, there were some hold good on, ones. Hold on, hold on. No, you've had your say about the bad ones. Before you move on to the good ones, I'm jumping in and uh, joining in some of the uh, talk about the slightly less good quality punditry, shall we say. I was watching a match with my mum, who's a huge fan of the World Cup, and watch, has watched almost as many games as I have. Um, and Alan Hansen and Alan Shearer were doing a piece of half-time analysis. I can't even remember the game. And... Oh, it was the terrible Brazil-Portugal game. Fair enough, not a good game in the slightest. But they were showing replays of action. And Alan Shearer was saying he's got into a bit of space down the left here and then he's knocked the ball in and that's good from the centre-half. That's not punditry. That's very slow, very tedious commentary. Yeah, I, I think you're right. They they do need to add some value. That's the point, isn't it? Add some value. Give us some... If, they're professional players. They're supposed to know more than we do about the game. Because you, they've lived it and breathed it, they've been in the training sessions, they've had the tactical talks, they understand what it's like in the dressing room, they understand the pressures of match day, what they'll be feeling at that time, uh, because many of these have played in the World Cup and been in these big matches and faced penalty shootouts and, and all of this. And there's just none of it. None of it. It's, uh, there's not So few of them add anything. The thing you said about um, not knowing anything about the players and not having done any research, there's a piece going around, uh, and it's been talked about a lot, I think, in the general football media-following-type world, but that you are made fun of on air if you've done research about your players. You know, the, the, the Alan Shearer called Lee Dixon, I think it was, a SWAT Oh, but but that's English football, isn't it? I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I I don't I don't know whether this really happens um, overseas, but in English football, you're the professor, the bookworm, the SWAT, teacher's pet. If you've done an A level yeah, as a player, so <laughs> that's just translated. And this is broadcast obsession with having solely ex players as pundits, um, and and you know they they probably do better to have. A mix of players, managers, and you know professional content people, you know journalists or broadcasters or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah I just find it so frustrating. I find it so frustrating. Today, ITV were celebrating because they knew nothing about the Paraguay team. Um, Gareth Southgate, another one I really don't like very much. I, I know you have uh, a slightly different mind. opinion. Well, anyway, so he he said we're we're holding on like a man drowning to Roque Santa Cruz because he's the only player we know. Hello, <laughs> yeah. Hello, watch some games. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, ITV's coverage is uh, increased, improved greatly by the presence of Adrian Childs, but that's you know. That's one of them extremely low bars that's been set in the past. I'm glad that it's Adrian Charles and not Steve Ryder, uh, but that doesn't make it gripping, can't-miss halftime television. Every day I've listened to the Guardian podcast, um, Football Day, uh, World Cup Daily, which is um, phenomenal, and the quality of analysis in half an hour on that show is in a different league and it's not all t totally po-faced and serious far from it it's a real good sense of humor about it and but the just the kind of 
tactical insight and little things where you constantly listen thinking oh yeah I didn't think of that as opposed to watching Alan Shearer tell you what's just happened in a way that you couldn't possibly have missed um, Beglin oh, one of my great problems with Jim Beglin is that man has no concept of what the rules of football are his relationship to the disciplining of players and the giving awarding of fouls and cards it's like he's just really from another planet when it comes to that stuff talking of which Mick McCarthy who I've sort of weirdly liked in a kind of very grumpy Ron Atkinson he's like a grumpy version of Big Ron and twice he said this game's what I call parasite football I love that. I don't know what it means, but parasite football's been played twice. <laughs> yeah, well, um, the He's... irony, of course, that Mick McCarthy had a rant about uh, teams parking the bus the other day. Yeah, totally. uh, and when Wolves didn't play a single game last season, when they didn't park the bus. The um, the thing about it as well is like he's definitely convinced that unless someone was in physical jeopardy, there should never be a card awarded. Because, like, you know, a professional foul from behind, which is not aimed at all at hurting the player, but is just aimed at breaking up the play. You're like, oh, there was no vicious intent in that. It's like there really is nothing in the rule books about how there has to be a vicious intent in order to award some sort of card. So um, they've not all been terrible, though, have they? I mean, I, I, I've enjoyed a couple. I, I particularly enjoyed Roy Hodgson, and uh, I guess he might be a candidate for the England manager's job if he doesn't end up at Anfield, and uh, he's pretty insightful. Um, what, what about you? I, I love Roy Hodgson. There was a brilliant tweet from At Danger here um, who said that they really liked to imagine that Roy Hodgson had been sat at home watching television for the first week of... Uh, the World Cup and just decided to do something about it and got on a plane and forced himself into the BBC studio to save our national broadcaster's embarrassment Uh, and then uh, very good um, has been Jürgen Klinsmann plenty of insight uh, always kind of engaging entertainment I tell you who has come on leaps and bounds as a pundit from the pool of English ex-players and that's Lee Dixon Uh, I'm now going to praise an ex- Arsenal player who's a massive Man City fan, but uh, Lee Dixon offers something, I think, there is yes. some analysis there. I, I do agree, there is some analysis, yeah. I, and I, I quite enjoy Marcel Desailly, I mean I enjoyed him working for the BBC at last World Cup and of course he's with uh, ITV this time round, but at least he's got that enthusiasm, right? I mean, I don't think he offers huge amounts of analysis, uh, if any, um, but he just loves the game and his passion for Ghana and all the African teams were, uh, were, you know, added something, I think, to the coverage. I agree totally. And also I'm a big fan of his use of the word equilibrated, which is a French word that he just believes exists in English but doesn't, <laughs> which means balanced, which I love. I love that. Every time he says it, I want to give him a massive hug. Yeah, love Marcel Desai. So um, talking of the African teams, not a brilliant uh, World Cup for them so far, apart from the Black Stars. No, but I, I, um, I, you know, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I actually, uh, bef- before the World Cup, if you remember our podcast, I predicted the none of them would make it through so they, they've done better than I thought um, I, I, I just think many of them aren't very good sized but the difference with Ghana of course is they've killed all the African and they've been coached to hell and uh, they're actually quite a quite a solid defensive side that that have some you know really good attacking players that can break well and uh, they've done they've done really well uh, yeah you would you describe them as well organized well organized I think is the uh, is the term yeah um, uh, I, I said at the beginning of the tournament and, and lo how I've 
been proved to eat my words that there were two teams in this tournament that would be improved by being managed by Sven Joran Eriksson. One was France, pretty sure I was right about that one, um, but the other, of course, was Argentina. Well, I was badly wrong, and we'll come on to that later. But Sven Joran Eriksson's Ivory Coast were perhaps the most disappointing thing about it. I mean, I, I thought they were always going to struggle to get out of the group stages, but why he did not take that first game by the throat and try and beat Portugal is beyond me. Because and it's Sven! It's Sven, yeah. isn't it? I mean, how many times did we say that about Sven's England? Um, no, he, he's just... Yeah, he doesn't. He's he's not the guy who takes the game by the scruff of the neck and, and makes changes. Uh, and unlike um, unlike the Chile manager, of course, who made eighty seven substitutions per half. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, he kind of got it wrong against Brazil. But we, listen, let's not go match by match because we'll be here forever if we do that. Because we we've tried to podcast a couple of times. It just hasn't it hasn't been able to make it work. And so for the uh, few of you that have been crying out for it on Twitter, which has been an absolute delight to me, I must shout out. Uh, I'm going to just go with the pronunciation Awate91 and uh, Happy Hero uh, Luzniki2008 um, and anyone else that's uh, given us a shout on Twitter to say Oi, where's the podcast? Um, It's it's, it's nice to be wanted Um, Yeah, I've really enjoyed watching Ghana play that I think that's my, even though it's clearly not the best goal of the tournament, my favourite goal of the tournament is Asamoah Jan's extra time winner the other day Against the USA, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it was um, it was dramatic, wasn't it? It's uh, yeah, it was a good, it was a good the, game. Yeah. The way he held off the challenge and the uh, power of that finish was was phenomenal. Um, well, um, since since we're on to finishes, what, what have your favourite goals been so far this tournament? Well, the, there was that one, um, and oh man, right back to the first game, that Chavalala goal was just wicked just the way it absolutely ignited the world cup and at that point we did not realize that the jablani was going to be uh so impossible to shoot from distance so we yeah. perhaps didn't realize quite how special it was um i'm i'm, I'm sorry I, I have vowed to set partisanship apart aside for the majority of this podcast so i have to mention uh carlos tevez's Stunner, wasn't it? Stunner. A couple of really good Japanese free kicks as well in the group stages. Yeah. Uh, Not a lot of long-range shots. And it's a real shame because, you know, I I remember fondly Mexico 86. And in my mind, there were a lot of long-range goals because that was uh, was at altitude and the ball travels faster. But I, I think a lot of the players struggle to keep this ball down. And... It was a good piece of commentary I was I was reading the other day uh, about how some of the uh, the the players had realised you know how it works and adjusted their technique to hit down on the ball for sure uh, that's yeah. you've seen that happening and I think that's one of the main reasons that the tournaments lit up in the last round of group games and um, the the second round so far it really it's to do with the stakes rising and teams having to be more attacking but also definitely you've been able to visibly see the quality of passing improve and the kind of weighting of shots get better and better and those those Japanese free kicks were a brilliant example of that yeah, um, I, I I did enjoy um, uh, David Villa's goal where he skips through a couple of players to score. That was a uh, you know, typical Villa goal, to be honest. Um, fantastic. I, I really liked his, his shot where the goalkeeper wasn't even in the goal, but it was just very well taken, very composed. And, of course, um, not too much United interest left in the tournament. Well, OK, no United interest left in the tournament. None whatsoever. But our boy Chikorito don't look too bad, does he? Not 
10 seconds before he scored that goal you posted. Bit disappointed with Hernandez today. And then an absolutely blistering finish. I think he's going to be a frustrating player, but I think he's certainly going to have his moments. Yeah, I, he look, just looks like a box player to me. He, he looks like a younger Michael Owen. Um, he's very quick for a start. He's just stronger and better in the air. Um, I think he'll, he he looks like he'd be a very useful asset. I suspect there'll be a six-month bedding-in period. It was a bit frustrating with Hernandez because um, he, he just didn't get a chance in the, the first three games. And uh, the coach uh, finally realised, Aguirre, Javier Aguirre, realised that uh, Franco is just awful. Um, and and dropped in and and then Hernandez has his big chance and just basically didn't. I mean, neat on the ball. He's obviously got a good touch. Uh, he lays it off well. He brings players into play, but he he barely had a chance. And his one chance, he fluffed the header. Um, and then of course that stunning goal, the, the lovely turn. Of course, the player was far too tight to him, which was a pretty crucial central defensive mistake there. Um, but a great finish. Lashed it in with the left foot. Uh, there's there's a whole bunch of other goals that I can't uh, draw to mind at the moment that have been good. Um, some of the Brazil, some of the passing in the build up to Brazil's goals has been stunning. In the in the first Brazil game, perhaps the second, uh, it was a through ball from Kaká to um, Fabiano, who by the way keeps saying, "Please buy me, Mr. Ferguson. I would like to come and play for your fine institution." But I, I can't quite see that working out financially. Um, but there was just the waiting on Kaká's through ball, and everyone was kind of slating him and saying he'd have a terrible game in spite of Brazil winning. But the waiting on that through ball was, was quite spectacularly good. Yeah, um, and I guess uh, we briefly touched on United players there. A pretty disappointing tournament all around for all of them, except awesome. for Hernandez, who actually isn't a United player until Thursday. Um, well, and he's also out of the tournament, so it's probably quite disappointing in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of expectations, he, he did all right. Um, Rooney, we've discussed. Ferdinand, of course, didn't even make the tournament. Carrick hasn't played a minute, probably, probably the best of the lot in that sense. Um, <laughs> Park, they did okay, Korea. I mean, made the second round that's all they wanted to do and he had a, a couple of decent games I, I thought um, Tosic had a few minutes uh, as Serbia bowed out uh, against Australia they had, after me tipping them as dark horses had a terrible tournament and, and Vidic was pretty solid aside from that bizarre penalty he gave away against Germany to quote Soldier Boy, <laughs> he went a little Superman on that move. <laughs> what what was that about? Let's let's hope he doesn't do that ever ever. Very ever odd. United. But but of course I think gonna... Vidic seems to have, have kind of quietened down on the come and get me stuff. I, I think um, I think they're waiting to see who makes a move. Um, right. United aren't going to up his contract. I think that's pretty clear. They'd have done it by now. So. Uh, yeah, I think he's waiting to see on uh, what offers are available and uh, if there's a good one coming from a big European club, he'll he'll be off. Which which is a shame because he had a good back end of the season and and he's still a class he's still a class act. Um, talking of talking of people who are still a class act in spite of the circumstances around them, uh, notre Patrice. No, he <laughs> joue pour la France. Um, so I'm I'm half English, half French. Not a brilliant World Cup all round for my uh, heritage teams. No, well, it, it, uh, utterly comically disastrous one for the French team. I, I mean, I, I suppose we we almost got there in, in a very English way with with John Terry's uh, sort of attempted coup. But I just, it was insane. I mean, everyone knew everyone hated Dominic before the game, right? Everyone knew that he's kind of slightly unhinged, Dominic. 
um, you know, one sandwich short of the full picnic. Uh, some one, very excuse me, one baguette short of the full picnic. <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, but uh, I mean, he 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 lost the dressing room to the extent that when they decided to go on strike, they forced him to read out the statement. <laughs> It's like the, the phrase lost the dressing room gets bandied about in football. But like this man didn't just lose the dressing room. He lost the building the dressing room was in. He lost the area of the town that the building that the dressing room was in was in. And then he lost the whole town. Then he lost the whole country. He did. But bizarrely, of course, he, he's just gained a little bit of respect by <laughs> by slagging off the players who went on strike. And I, I think rightly afterwards, uh, yeah, a couple of the senior players who are clearly... The, I mean, it's very factionalised, the French camp, isn't it? Um, yeah. And there's some of the senior players like Henri and Malouda and Evra and Abidal uh, were separated very distinctly from some of the younger players. Um and uh, very distinctly from Dominic as well. And and some of those senior players, well, Evra and, and Maluda have come out afterwards and said, we were wrong to, to not train. And and they were wrong to not train. No matter how much they they hated the regime, no matter how, how wrong it was for uh, somebody to leak to the, the press what Anelka has said at half-time, and, and in fact for the French Federation to send Anelka home, because, you know... I'm quite sure in every single dressing room, I've only played amateur football at a very poor level, there's a hell of a lot of swearing going on then. I'm sure you son of a whore is not the worst thing that Dominic has heard in recent times. Uh, No, a a friend of mine was quite pleased to get 65-1 to on Anelka being the top scorer from Betfair at the beginning of the tournament than he was not at all sure he'd taken the best of it by the end of uh, France's time in the tournament. Um, No... It'd be interesting to see if Evra gets his place back, of course, because he dropped by Dominic for his part in the revolution, and uh, Clichy came in. I guess it will be a clean slate under Laurent Blanc, and you'd hope so, otherwise they, they can't move on. It's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how they rebuild. And, I, I mean, like, if you're if you're someone who likes French football, which, which I am, uh, sorry to my Irish brothers and sisters, um, Blanc's a fantastic person to be given a <coughs> Blanc canvas. <laughs> oh dear! Oh, sorry, <laughs> choking on a pun. <laughs> yes, um, no, uh, you're right. Of course, he's the right person. Uh, he's an interesting character because um, his coaching career kind of took off, but they've just had a, an awful season, Bordeaux. But um, and and he's still quite young in, in coaching terms. But I, I think he'll be the man. That he's obviously massively respected. He's He's not a French Federation insider either, no. and I think that was an important uh, appointment. And you know, factually, uh, I think they have a, a much wider pool of talent than England does at the moment. And I, I would expect them to do very well in the qualification process for Euro 2012. And, and, and I know that starts very soon, but I think Blanc will pull all those different factions together now. So, talking of the qualification uh, campaign, you put on Twitter the other day like pop quiz name your England lineup and formation to play against Hungary yeah uh, and Th- that's I- a friendly um, yeah yeah absolutely. in 11th of August yeah but uh, let's assume that you're going to pick your full strength side and forget resting players and stuff which obviously they probably might not play Rooney or whatever but you, I think you, you play a full 5-1 and this is obviously everyone's fit so that's that's not not the real world but I think you play Joe Hart in goal because why not yeah I know I, I Rob, Rob Green's blown his international career I'm afraid I mean 
it's very hard to come oh look at Paul Robinson very hard to come back from something like that I think um, I think I still play Glenn Johnson at right back because well, well there aren't really any other options I mean we, he is what he is right he's he's inventive going forward and he's got loads of pace he's just a shocking defender mm. it, it would be really nice for us to find an alternative but there isn't one at the moment and then at centre half I suppose this is this might just be because he didn't play so he looks better in everyone's opinions but obviously you pick Rio I mean obviously because yeah. wow he, he's still got to play yeah so much difference to this England side. I, I personally think there's a big question mark hanging over Terry not not just because of his attitude oh, and the last he's out. yeah he's rubbish he's I mean like... he, he had an awful he had an awful, I mean you know I, it's been well documented I'm no fan of John Terry either as a person or, or as a player and uh, I, I think his lack of mobility and and positional unawareness is that a word well it is Oops. now um it is uh it's just massively exposed at international level and and it's happened time and again and and he'll only get in the team if there are no better alternatives and and so i'd like to see him go totally and clean yeah, so slate yeah i think i play rio and matthew dawson um, yeah, my problem with Dawson is is um, he, he'll be targeted like everyone else because he's not that comfortable on the ball, and his possession is the weakest part of his game. And yeah, and like, I, name name an English centre half whose first name isn't Rio, who's comfortable on the ball. Where's well, where, yeah, where's Brown? But I, I I wouldn't. It's impossible. He's he's injured too often. He just doesn't play for United. I mean, King is very comfortable. Unfortunately, injured constantly. Uh, yeah. So he he's not an option. Um, you can't build you can't build your team around King. That's the you know. No, no, you can't. And I mean, maybe uh, you could say that you can't do that around Rio anymore either. But we'll see. No, and because of his injury problems, we'll see whether he. I mean, of course, the, the groin injury that he got uh, during the World Cup was a. Uh, you you would say is a bit of a freak because it just doesn't fit with the back injuries you've got. Un- unfortunately, the back injuries Rio has had seem to have these knock-on effects. So we don't know. But back spinal injuries always do. Like if you you know know anything about osteopathy, like that it's a the spine affects every other bit of the body doesn't it so right uh, then obviously you play Ashley Cole at left back um, I think I have a midfield three of Owen Hargreaves Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard probably yeah I, 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 I think personally I think it's probably time to dispense with Lampard uh, nothing wrong with having him in the squad I mean um, he scores that many goals for midfield but he's not getting any younger he's 32 now and he had a very poor tournament um, I, I think I, I, if I'm going to get rid of one of them, I'm getting rid of Stevie G. But I'm maybe, maybe biased. Yeah, I, I would keep Stevie G, despite Oof. the fact that I hate him um, on many levels, um, uh, and I think his role is is further forward. Uh, and I, I would probably go with two defensive players in there. Yeah, so, play Barry and Hargreaves. Yeah, Barry, who I, I don't think had a very good tournament, will forgive him that because he, he clearly wasn't fit. And, and, and Hargreaves, well, will he ever come back? Otherwise, it might be time to blood a younger player. And, and we'd love to see Jack Rodwell perform at the highest level in the Premiership more regularly and to the extent that everyone kind of hopes that he will perform. Um, yeah. I think it might be a bit too early for him for September or in fact the the rest of the next season but but we'll see I mean uh, players have come into the England side at that age before of course uh, Wayne Rooney did um, and then, then further forward my three uh, would probably be uh, Cole on the left 
Gerard just behind Rooney and then on the right hand side Adam Johnson mainly because I think if you'd if you'd and Johnson of course can play either side as, as can Colwood which would give some England some flexibility to their attacking formation um, you could but, argue you could argue that Joe Cole can play neither side but. you could argue that of course and of course Joe Cole could play just behind and and he has his limitations right and and if you've seen any of the posts I've done on uh, rant recently uh, I think a few people misunderstood my point which was financial not about Joe Cole I, I, I don't I don't think I'd place him in my sort of top 20 creative midfielders in Europe it's not because he didn't have the potential to be there he certainly did I mean when Joe Cole was 21 he was the Mesut Ozil of English football um, yeah. he took a long time to mature then he got a lot of injuries and then no one could quite know, kind of work out where he should play but I don't see any other playmaker there and there needs to be that bit of magic yeah, for sure. I totally agree. Mm. Uh, and that's that's pretty much my three, except I don't think I'm quite ready to... I think in that system, like Theo Walcott could do a lot of damage, potentially, but, but either him or Aaron Lennon or Sean Wright Phillips all have the same problem, which is a lack of end product. Yeah, I, I think Wright Phillips has the most end products, uh, mm. but he has some, he has some problems uh, running down blind alleys and he loses possession and... Um, he, he doesn't quite have the same amount of pace as the other two. Lennon, Lennon, aside from often having no end product, and that wasn't really the accusation you'd make against him while playing for Tottenham this season. Uh, his biggest right. problem at the World Cup is he just absolutely shirked it. He obviously just did not have the confidence in himself to to do it when it really mattered. Uh, and Walcott, I think, just hasn't grown up. And I, I just, I've barely ever seen him play a good game. To be honest, I just don't understand what the fuss is about. Maybe, maybe one day, right? I think that the 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 one thing where where that system seems like completely self evidently the right way for him to play either with one holding midfield and two bombing forward or two holding midfielders and then like just a proper like four th- four two three one the problem is that's a pretty tactically sophisticated formation for a group of players that don't get to play together all the time and we've seen at United how disastrously wrong a 4-5-1 that turns into a 4-3-3 can go when it doesn't turn into a 4-3-3 you know? yeah I mean I think over the course of the season United honed that one pretty well and it's also yeah, the system did, exactly. that Chelsea play it's also the system that Liverpool play it's not the system well it's kind of the system that Arsenal evolved to They uh, for a long long time Wenger was insistent on playing a, a straight 4-4-2 but yeah, it just makes most sense with this group of players. It might not always, and I, I don't think four four two is dead. I, I, I think they'll these these things go in phases. The problem is you have to be adaptable to what the the opposition does, and and too many English players aren't. I think many of them who play in systems that are adaptable ought to be better than they have been. Of course, England have got a pretty easy Euro 2012 qualifying group, um, and and that might mask some of the team's deficiencies over the next two years. I mean, they face Switzerland, Bulgaria, Wales, and Montenegro, and guess the toughest of those will be Switzerland, simply because they did qualify for this tournament, but they were pretty dreadful side. And Bulgaria, without Dimitar Berbatov, of course, uh, offered very little in World Cup qualifying, and Wales, and Montenegro, just terrible. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I can't disagree with that. Uh, let's talk about some teams that aren't England, for goodness sake. Let's talk about some teams that have been playing beautiful, interesting football to watch. Man, I I have to eat so much crow about Diego Maradona's ability to manage a team through this tournament. And what is fascinating is um, just what a perfect fit he is 
for this job. I mean, there's a lot of talk about how he's not really responsible for the tactics in the kind of nuance of it, but he does seem to have a pretty good grasp of it. And once he's got his gang of players that are kind of... He's just built up such a team spirit. Now, I think they're going to get really badly found out at some point, Argentina, but only because their central defenders are so poor. Yeah, well, Um, the whole whole back four is poor. I mean, Heinz is obviously getting on pretty slow and... And uh, Samuel is not always fit, and Dimichaelis is terrible, and they finally uh, ditched Gutierrez at right back, which was a good job, um, I think, and just stuck another central defender out there on the right. Yeah, so I think there will be, but yeah, he's look, he he he's smart enough that he changed the tactics. I mean, after using a hundred players in qualifying and switching between four four two and three four three and three five two and um messing with the tactics every single game. He he's stuck on a four three three system which gets the best out of Lionel Messi and I think he's had a pretty good tournament Messi even though he's been unlucky on the goal front. Um oh, yeah, for sure. And 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 he's getting the best out of Tevez who who effectively comes off the left and Higuain who's the pivot and uh, you know, it's incredible, really, that they they can leave uh, a player of the quality of um, Sergio Aguero and gosh, Diego Melito. Diego Melito, thank you, um, on the bench, and it shows you how much firepower they've got. It's 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 yeah, it's absolutely it's it's great fun to watch as well. That's the thing. Um, Brazil have been uh, intermittently fun to watch and frustrating. Um, uh, same for Spain. Yeah, very, very ropey first game. But I, th- I think the problem with Spain. I mean, obviously, um, I think they're, they're probably the most technically accomplished of all those sides. I, I think I, I think Argentina have the most firepower. Brazil are the best defensively of of any of the top sides, and it's probably well they'll win the tournament. And and Spain are the most technically accomplished. The problem with Spain is they don't have a plan B at the moment. Against Switzerland, they got really found out because they just passed and passed and passed and passed and passed, and they went in the little triangles. And Switzerland went really, really narrow. And I didn't see a cross come in for about eighty-five minutes in that game. Um, and it'll it'll be interesting to see whether um, uh, they, of course, they play Portugal in a, in, in a, a few minutes' time, and uh, should they get past that, um, how uh, Paraguay will deal with them? Because of course Paraguay will play very, very narrow in that quarter-final and um, I think Spain might struggle with that but we'll see we will um, Portugal don't look like titled contenders to me by any stretch of the imagination no and, and by the time I post this it'll probably be about mid-match so we'll see <laughs> we will uh, Cristiano's not having a brilliant tournament nor is he having a terrible tournament pretty thankless task he's got in that Portugal side I'd say uh, talking of ex-players this one would not a uh, uh, thank- thankless task but a very uh Thankful task, Diego Forlan. What a tournament the boy's having. He's been having a stunning tournament, but then he's had a very good career post-United, hasn't he? Um, he he's, has. He's just, a, he's just a good player that came to United at the wrong time. Uh, my friend Phil would like to point out um, that Uruguay were his official dark horse picks. I believe my dark horses did better than your dark horses because I had USA and you had Serbia. Yeah. But still, neither of them done particularly well. But yeah, Uruguay looked like a fantastic team. And talking of favourite goals, that Diego Suarez goal the other day, wow. Yes, and, and he's a very good pay- player, Diego Suarez. Um, although, although he was part of the reason that I um, am still lobbying for the phrase excellent scoring record in Dutch football to be permanently stricken from the record and to not be considered to have any validity as to judging the quality of a player. 
Well, uh, of course, you have um, Ruud van Nistelrooy versus Matai Kesman to, to thank for that particular problem. Yeah. Hey, listen, I've got on, on the kind of Van Nistelrooy and potentially Suarez side, you've got them guys, but then you've got Dirk Cal- Alfonso Alves and Matteo Kesman. All right, well, listen, are we going to d- promise the people that we're going to do this again before the World Cup's finished? We certainly do it before the World Cup final, and uh, we'll have another review of the quarterfinals and the semifinals, probably uh, preview the final, and let's hope that the standard of the football is continues to be good at. The uh, the Paraguay-Japan game was the worst of the tournament, uh, <laughs> but let's, let's, we've got that one out of the way now. It's going to be great football from now onwards. And and just once again, I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone that's uh, that's kind of asked about the podcast and uh, got in touch. Uh, I totally, totally love uh, getting feedback. You can either post a comment on uh, the uh, post on unitedrand.co.uk or you can leave us a review in iTunes or uh, shout at United Rant, that's Ed on Twitter, or at UTD Rantcast, that's me. We, we we love getting your feedback. Also, there's an email address, I believe, cast at unitedrant.co.uk. See you soon. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-